0: Well, good morning. If we haven't had the uh, opportunity of meeting yet, my name's Tyler. I'm the youth pastor here, and uh, it's an honor to be with you this morning as we are in week seven of our series, Life Lessons from Mark. And uh, before I get started, I didn't raise this up during the uh, prayer time, and I meant to, so I just wanted to say... Thank you. There was a group of youth parents who had decided that it was time for my office to stop looking like a gray dungeon, and so they very gracefully pulled together, and and some of the culprits are in the front row here, and they very gracefully pulled together and uh, made my office, gave it a makeover, and so I'm grateful, and I don't even know how to say thank you. It is a huge blessing and something that I never would have got to myself, so thank you to all of you, and uh, yeah, I'm going to be honest. This morning is not the most fun teaching that Jesus ever gave. It's not a sermon that you're going to turn to necessarily when you need a whole lot of encouragement, but it's important and it's going to remind us of some truths that are Um, very serious and that we need to talk about and that we need to examine ourselves in as believers. And if you've been around for any period of time, uh, I know most of you have been here longer than I have, but there was this joke for a while uh, when I started here that I always am the one who has to preach through the tough topics. And then I realized this week that I can't even make that joke because I'm the one who does it to myself. Because every time Andrew says to me, if we want to switch, and I tell him no. So here we are, me me. Uh, preaching the less than fun topics, maybe. I wonder if you've ever heard the phrase, or I'm sure you have heard the phrase. It's the thought that counts. It's this idea that our intentions, uh, our, our intentions or our internal purposes of the matter, generally uh, are more important even than the result of our actions themselves. the The heart behind, the intention behind what we do, tends to matter even more than the action itself. We see this happening both in a positive and in a negative sense, right? Negatively, if you meet someone who does a bunch of great stuff for charity and then find out they did it only to get featured in a newspaper or something, it kind of rubs you the wrong way because although their actions are virtuous, their intentions are self-serving and we don't like that. It doesn't sit right with us. We, We recognize that there's something wrong with that. And on the flip side, things don't always work out exactly as we want them to, but if the, if the intentions are good, then the act can still be appreciated. For example, my proposal to my wife was not the most eloquent moment ever, First off, she had figured out that it was going to happen already, and so uh, she got to Grinnell College where we host summer games, which is where we met, and uh, that sounds sweet that I would propose there, and yet it was 25 degrees outside because at this point it was the middle of December, and uh, so it was a less than pleasant afternoon, and then our friend Kelsey, who was helping me out with the proposal, sticks a phone in Bailey's hand with this slideshow video that I made of us with some music uh, that was way too long, and so Kelsey had to like walk her around the campus before she could end up to where I was at because she was going to get to me before the video ended and so uh, I was standing there waiting and it was going to end too soon so she's walking in some crazy nonsensical pattern and I had bought flower petals because I thought that that would be sweet and then I didn't think I should buy, I didn't think to buy uh, real flower petals, you know, environmentally and so I had fake flower petals that I proceeded to dump out and try and spread on the ground all around me, and I got yelled at by a Grinnell College security person, and then, before I could even pick them up and apologize, they all blew away in the wind. I tried to light candles, and of course they wouldn't light because of that same wind. My collar was flipped up on the back of my suit jacket, and then when I got down on a knee to propose, I opened the ring box upside down and dropped the ring. You get the picture. Everything went wrong, everything can go wrong, but it's still a sweet story because the heart behind it is sincere. And ultimately in that story, not everything went wrong. The most important part did go right because she said yes and we've been married for a year and a half now. So uh, clearly she appreciated my intentions, even if my execution was less than uh, sufficient. And so today we've arrived at this point in Jesus' life and ministry where he demonstrates the importance of our heart and really the importance of understanding the position of our hearts as believers in all things. And so my uh, encouraging title this morning as we dive into Mark chapter 7 is this, The True Origin of Sinfulness. And some of you brought a friend today for the first time, and they're like, why is today the day you brought me to church? The true origin of sinfulness. So we pick up this morning after Jesus walks on the water before the disciples. They reach the shore, and they're traveling around northern Israel, healing the sick and preaching the arrival of God's kingdom in Jesus. And right before where we pick up today, a number of Jesus' disciples have abandoned him, right? He had the 12 apostles, but there were a number of other followers that were going around with Jesus as well, hearing his teaching, taking in what he had to say, and then going out and spreading that same message. But then he tells them some things in John chapter 6 that kind of uh, leads the disciples or many of the disciples to turn away, uh, to leave to say the things that Jesus is teaching, the things that Jesus is teaching are just too difficult. They just rub me in a way that i don 't quite like, and so a number of the disciples have abandoned Jesus and we arrive at this point where jesus 's teachings start to hinge away from things that people like to hear to things that they don 't quite like to hear. And so Jesus and the 12 disciples return to Galilee in northwestern Israel, and they're confronted by a group of Pharisees and religious teachers, which is where we'll begin in Mark chapter 7. And I'm going to be in the English Standard Version today, but you could use whatever version is on your Bibles there. Or you can look up on the screen as well. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands. Now, on the surface level, that sounds like a good idea, right? It's good to wash your hands before you eat, and washing your cups and your pots isn't such a bad thing either, right? However, proper hygiene is not what the Pharisees had in mind here. See, these Pharisees, they're high-ranking officials that had come from Jerusalem, which means the local Pharisees in Galilee were so concerned about what Jesus was teaching that they called in the big guns, right? They called in the leaders of the religious day. They called in the Pharisees and the scribes from Jerusalem, the one that were at the very seat of religious authority in the Jewish religion. That's where all things took place. That's where the temple was. And so they brought in the experienced Pharisees and the experienced teachers to come and see about what Jesus was teaching and to see if what he was doing was really contrary to their rules, right? Jesus was beginning to stir up Uh, a lot of division and, and excitement in his teachings. And so the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they come to Jesus, they see what's going on, and they don't care about hygiene. They're concerned actually about ritual cleanliness. Throughout the Old Testament, we see this theme of things being clean or unclean, having an impact on the people of God and whether or not they could worship him. So if somebody was unclean, they, were not, they could not worship him. They were impure, defiled, and unholy. They had either come into contact with something that God had told them not to in order that they might be set apart as his chosen people, or they had committed a type of sin that had caused them in their ritual status before God to be ceremonially unclean. And in the law of God, there are hundreds of procedures about how they could become clean or purified again through certain sacrifices. And so when this confrontation takes place, because over time, the oral tradition, the teachings of the Jewish religious leaders, called the traditions of the elders here in the text, they had attempted to stop ritual impurity. They had attempted to stop people from breaking the law of God by putting a fence in essence, around God's holy law so that people could not come close to breaking it. The thought was, if God's rule is one thing, then they'll take it a step further in order to protect people from committing a sin, from from egreging God's holy law. So even though the only people in the Old Testament that were actually called to wash their hands before they ate with this ceremonial washing were the priest's, and the religious leaders, before a sacrifice, the Pharisees and the teachers imposed the rule on everyone before they ate. So they would taken God's law and they built a fence around it and said, Now not only do the priests have to wash their hands before they offer sacrifices, but every single person has to wash their hands in a specific way before they eat so that they might be ceremonially clean. And in this scenario, the Pharisees see jesus 's disciples eating without performing that ritual hand washing and this section of mark 's Gospel, like I said, is actually a hinge point when jesus 's ministry moves from being primarily focused on the Jewish people to including the Gentiles as well and This is important because one of the things that the Pharisees and the Jews of the day believed made you unclean was coming in contact with a person that was not Jewish, called a Gentile, so they would, for example, wash their Their hands when coming back from the marketplace because they may have come into contact with an unclean person. And Jesus, at this point in his ministry, is going to begin to show them throughout the rest of Mark's gospel that those people, the Gentiles, the, the people that had sicknesses and diseases, the people that could not live up to the incredibly ridiculously high standards that the Pharisees had set, those people that the Pharisees considered unclean were the very people that Jesus had come to be with the very people that Jesus had come to save. And Jesus is going to teach these Pharisees that the truth about what's unclean is that it comes from inside the person, not from what they do before they eat, not from who they interact with, or how well they observe these traditions made up by men. Being unclean or sinful, Jesus argues, comes not from what takes place outside of the body, not what happens to a person, but it originates on the inside. That sinfulness originates in the heart. At the very core of who we are as human beings, there is sin. And he gives us four examples that reveal a sinful heart, and we'll see that today. But uh, don't worry, hang with me, because I promise there is hope at the end of this message that Jesus teaches. Number one is that vain worship reveals a sinful heart. Mark 7, 6 and 7 says, And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. See, as Christians, we are called to be constantly examining ourselves to ensure that we're living like Jesus with Him as our example. And so we have to test ourselves against the word of Scripture to see uh, that our hearts are pure, that we're worshiping Jesus the way He calls us to. And so when I say things today... That re- when I say these things today that reveal a sinful heart, I'm not saying that it means that somebody isn't saved, although it may reveal that for some, so much as it's an area of our life that needs repentance. Part of the Christian walk is a calling to constant and continual repentance, taking our heart and bearing it before the Lord that he might cleanse us. And Jesus calls these Pharisees hypocrites and then proceeds to quote from Isaiah 29:13. Now, the word hypocrites that Jesus uses to describe them here doesn't mean exactly what it has come to mean for us today. For when we call someone a hypocrite, we're saying that their actions are the opposite of their words. They do something something that they tell others not to do or vice versa. In the context of Jesus' speaking in this text, however, he's using it to mean somebody who's a pretender. Like the Greek word that gives us the word hypocrite here actually comes from a term that's used to describe stage actors in a play or a theater or a drama. He's saying that although they seem to honor God with their lips, their outward expression seems to glorify or intend to glorify God. Their hearts, their true motivations are actually something else. They're pretenders. And Jewish thought during that time, and even today, the heart represents more than just an organ that pumps blood through the body, but it's the core, the center of who we are as people. And so Jesus makes it clear here that God is after more than just outward expressions of worship. He cares about the heart behind it. The Pharisees may say these long, eloquent prayers, but it was only to make themselves look good. Or they might do some ritual before they eat, but it was simply to reinforce the authority of their own institutions. You might show up to church and sing real loud, but if it's just to seem spiritual, then it's vain worship. It's not true worship, and it reflects a heart that cares more about the opinions of others than giving God glory. You may give to the poor, you might volunteer, heck, you might even inconvenience yourself or someone else, and yet in your heart, if your goal isn't worship, if it's convincing yourself that somehow through doing all of these good things that God is now somehow in debt to you or he owes you so that things might go well to you, then it's not true worship, it's worship in vain. And throughout humanity, we've done this, right? Even in some Christian denominations, the teachings of their leaders is still that we have to do enough good things in order to earn the favor of God. That if I want God to reside in my heart as he promises to when he sends his Holy Spirit, then I need to do enough good things, I need to volunteer enough and go to church and make enough sacrifices, Right? I need to make sure I pray the right prayers. We've convinced ourselves in vain that God cares about all of these external things that we do more than he cares about what's taking place inside our own hearts. If God was after the kind of worship that makes us look good or feel good about ourselves, then the Pharisees would have been his most favorite people in the world and yet jesus says their hearts are far from me when our hearts are full of sin we find ourselves going through the motions of worship and yet it means nothing we might do all of the religious things we might check all the right boxes especially around the holidays and yet if my life isn't characterized by doing all things for the glory of god then i need to be shown my sinfulness And it's a vicious cycle, right? Because once worship starts to be in vain, once I start to worship without actually casting my heart upon the glory of the Lord, I say things to myself like I feel so far from God no matter what I do. And not all the time, but certainly sometimes, the reason we feel far from God is because we confuse doing Christian things with worshiping God. Those two things are not the same. For the Lord desires a relationship. He desires a loving connection to his people. And so some of the times that we feel far from God, it's because all we've been doing is going through the Christian motions. God's not after the Christian motions. He's after your heart. You can sing all you want to, but if your focus is on how good you sound and not simply giving glory to the one who holds the created world together simply by the word of his power, then you're not worshiping. And on the flip side, the person who has nothing left to give but takes the time to care for someone in need because they're created in the image of God and because loving our neighbors is worship, that person might do something that seems so insignificant like buy some food or a pair of gloves for somebody in need and yet their worship is real because it's done to bring glory to God. God wants worship that's characterized not by doing things that we think we need to do because it's our duty. He wants our hearts like wh- whoever you are, whoever you came in here today, God wants your heart. He doesn't, he doesn't want your vain actions or vain worship. He wants your heart. He wants the very core of you and he promises that even in the depths of your heart, like the parts that you don't want to show anybody else, that he loves you even in that deep part of your heart. God wants worship that's characterized by not doing things we think we need to do because it's our duty. Throughout all of the scriptures, he makes it so clear that his desire isn't for you to do a bunch of things you think you need to do in order to gain his favor. He simply wants your heart. He wants your love because he gives you his love, because he loves you so much that he was willing to die for you, and because in his glory and his majesty, he alone is deserving of the worship of our hearts. That's the message that characterizes our entire student and youth and children's ministry. Every Wednesday night, D6, it's from Deuteronomy 6. 5, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your strength. That's who we're supposed to be as Christians, not people who simply do a bunch of things that make us look good, right? But people who love the God, love God with all of our hearts. When our hearts are full of sin, it manifests itself as worship that isn't really worship, but a failed attempt to fulfill ourselves in some aspect of life instead of bringing God the glory that he alone deserves. Number two this morning, teaching human precepts as doctrines reveals a sinful heart. Mark 7, 7 and 8 says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. These Pharisees from Jerusalem were the highest authority in the land, when it came to the kind of fake, legalistic, stale, not heart-level religion that Jesus is condemning here in Mark 7. They had developed so many of their own rules and institutions regarding faith and regarding scriptures that we call the Old Testament that they had actually flipped the two things and begun to believe that their traditions were more valuable than the Word of God. The Jerusalem Talmud, for example, which is a Jewish writing from the time, states, the words of the scribes are more lovely than the words of the law. Right? The modern translation of that is, the words written down by people are better for us than the words of God. That means that our man-made ideas are more beautiful and more important than God's word. They considered breaking the traditions of the elders more sinful than breaking God's law and they advised people that when the traditions and God's law butted heads with each other that you should break God's law before you broke the traditions of the elders and yet this same level of foolishness I I think all of us can admit that that sounds silly right And yet this same level of foolishness exists in the church today. Some of it's blatant, right? Some of it is blatant. I'm not trying to pick on the Catholic Church, but for example, the Roman Catholic Church's position is this. Therefore, both sacred tradition and sacred scripture are to be accepted and venerated with the same sense of loyalty and reverence. I don't believe that to be true. I believe that the Word of God alone should hold that position over tradition in our hearts, I'm not saying traditions are inherently bad, but when they take the place of the Word of God, when they take the place of true heart worship, then they become an idol. One of those things is the infallible Word of God, and the other, the traditions, change every time the next generation of church leaders step in, which is not inherently bad, again, as long as Scripture stands alone as our primary authority on God. Some of it's less obvious, right, like when churches outlawed dancing and considered it the act of dancing to be a sin, right, like it made for a great movie in the 80s with Kevin Bacon, and then it made for a pretty good remake, actually, but it doesn't appear anywhere in Scripture, and yet it's treated as truth. There's no law in Scripture against dancing, and yet for so many years, it was considered like a crucial sin in the church, And even less formally, right? I think it kind of sneaks its way into our heart and we do these things and we believe these sayings such as, God helps those who help themselves, right? Find that in the Bible. You won't. Or God gives his toughest battles to his strongest soldiers. Again, you won't find it. And we accept them as these nice little sayings, but they tend to creep in. They inform our understanding of God without taking the time to evaluate how they disagree with what God says about himself. And it doesn't just happen on an intellectual level either. How many people turn away from Jesus, from worshiping him in spirit and truth because somebody stepped on their tradition? Because dang it, if they couldn't have their church the way they wanted to have their church, then they were going to see themselves out the door, right? But they don't just leave that church, they leave the faith altogether. Traditions in and of themselves are not bad, but when we allow them to take the position of God in our hearts, they've become idols and given us a false sense of faith. I'm going to be really clear. You can't love your church's music more than you love Jesus. You can't love a ministry in the church more than you love Jesus. You can't love a denomination or even a local church family or a pastor more than you love Jesus. Faith in tradition is not faith at all. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, if my religious system was taken away, If the faith that I grew up in no longer existed, would I still call myself a Christian? Is my faith in Jesus or is my faith in the religious system that I grew up in? In our sin, we tend to do this thing where we take the things that God has given us and we worship them instead of worshiping the God who gave them to us. If our ideas about how things should be and about what is true are more important to us than what God says is true, then we have a sinful heart. Number three, rejecting commandments to keep tradition reveals a sinful heart. This is verses 9 through 13. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or mother whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things that you do. What do you do when you read something in the Bible that doesn't align with how you think or feel? Or that's just something you don't like? Like when your desires and opinions Are confronted by the words of Scripture, who has to change? When you disagree with the Bible in your own heart and your own life, who wins? The religious leaders of the day had found a number of areas where God said something that they didn't like, so they made up some kind of rule to get around it. Right? For example, in this passage, the idea of calling something Corbin meant that it was set apart for God so that it could not be used for any other purpose. But there was a catch. It was set apart for God at some undefined future time. And until that point, it could be used for whatever you wanted. So the tradition became that people, especially people with a lot of wealth, would call everything that they owned Corbin so that they never had to share with anybody because they said, oh, that's set apart for God. Even though I can still use it for whatever I want, it's set apart for God. So all those scriptures about caring for one's father or mother, for giving to the orphans and the widows, they ignored those because, well, sorry, I can't give you anything because I set all my stuff apart for God. We've sang this hymn a couple times during this series in church called Trust and Obey. And one of the lines in that song reads, Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. When we live according to the will of God in our lives, we experience the life that God intended for us. And yet so often our hearts reflect something different. Let's be honest, we like to do things our way. Like, I like to get my way. I tend to be somebody that enjoys being able to control the situation. And when I can't, that's when I start to feel anxious, right? I want to call the shots. I want to determine the path of my life. And so we do this mental gymnastics that allows us to get out of doing what God calls us to do, even though submission to him is the only way to true fulfillment. We convince ourselves for one reason or another that my way is better than God's way. I had the privilege yesterday of participating in Dare to Share Live with some of our adult leaders and our students, and it's this great day of students learning all around the world, all 50 states, 27 different countries, coming together, learning about how to share the gospel, how to evangelize, and then getting the opportunity to actually go out and do it. And at one point during the day, there was a clip of this girl telling a fictional drama designed to illustrate reality. And she tells this story of a line of teenagers walking to the edge of a cliff in a trance and throwing themselves to their deaths without realizing what they're doing. And she hears the screams, but she can't stop them. And when she runs into her church building that's nearby and tries to get the people to help, they ignored her. And they got angry and they kicked her out of the church because she interrupted their singing. Because she stepped on their traditions. It was this painfully true illustration of how comfortable we are to sit in our heated churches with music and people that we like. When there are people right outside of those doors that are being led by the world in a trance to the death of their souls. Like people walking themselves off of a cliff without knowing what they're doing. And yet, instead of hearing their screams, we just turn our music up louder so that we don't have to recognize what's taking place right outside our own walls. And we've been given this great commandment in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, called the Great Commission to go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And yet, we ignore that commandment because it makes us uncomfortable Because we're afraid people will judge us and we ignore the lost as they plummet to their deaths because in our sinful hearts, we've decided that our traditions and our comfort are more important than God's command to go tell people about him. All right, I promise we're almost done. Number four, the last one, personal defilement reveals a sinful heart. This is the end of the passage here and he called the people to him again and said to them Hear me all of you and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him but the things that come out of a person are what See, the ceremonial food laws of the Old Testament were designed to set God's people apart from the rest of the nations. The same setting apart is why they did not like to associate with Gentiles. Again, they needed to remain clean. But they twisted the idea of being clean or set apart or holy as being something that occurs outside of them. And Jesus confronts this idea and says it's not about what you eat that determines whether or not you're holy. It's about what's inside of you and comes out of your mouth. It's about those deep down parts of you that really determine who you are and make you clean or unclean. There is no amount of external rule following that can make a heart full of evil thoughts, immorality, and wickedness into something pure. Surely we are called to obey the commands of God, but good works must be understood properly as the fruit of our salvation and not the root of our salvation. You will never be good enough to cleanse your own heart. There is no earning your way into heaven. You could be the Mother Teresa of today, and yet none of it matters because it's about what's on the inside not the outside that determines our status before the Lord our natural human disposition the Bible says is towards sin because of the fall that comes from within the heart it says in Jeremiah seventeen nine, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it follow your heart is terrible advice by the way that's not in my notes that's what that one's for free Remember, I said that this wasn't going to be your favorite sermon ever, right? It's not my favorite sermon ever to preach. Like, I'm hurting myself with these words. And yet, it's desperately necessary because we're called to examine ourselves as Christians against the truth. And the truth of God is more beautiful, more freeing, more liberating at the level of the heart than anything any human mind or tradition could ever invent or imagine. Because ultimately, he's made a way for sinful hearts. Last point, Christ alone can cleanse and change a sinful heart. 1 John chapter 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My sinful heart, full of deceit and unrighteousness and all of those things that were just listed at the end of Mark chapter 7, and he allowed them to drive nails through his wrists and his feet for that heart. For that heart in your chest, he experienced the full wrath of God so that the utter sinfulness of my heart could be cleansed and it could be redeemed and it could be made new. Surely I still struggle with sin because the fulfillment of my redemption lies in that final day when Christ returns. And yet even now I've been made new by the blood of Jesus and my soul is clean in the eyes of the Lord through his blood. Isaiah chapter 1 says though your sins are like scarlet they shall be as white as snow though they are red like crimson they shall become like wool Jesus Christ alone not our works not our traditions not our attempts at righteousness but Jesus Christ alone cleanses the hearts of sinners like us and that's the reason that the gospel message is good news. Right? If, if sin wasn't a thing, then we wouldn't need to preach the gospel because we wouldn't need saving. And yet, when you look at the world around you, you know that sin is a thing. And yet, God has made a way for the hearts of sinful people like us. That even when my worship falls short, even when I am worshiping in vain, that even when my priorities are out of whack, and even when my heart is laid bare before him, full of unholiness and defilement, the creator of the world looks at me and he says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove from your heart the heart of stone and give you the heart of flesh. Only when we see the true nature of our sinful hearts do we realize the fullness of love and joy that comes from a Savior who died that our hearts might be made new. So what do we do about it? If we've been going through the motions of worship, worshiping in vain, give your heart to God. It, have you been attached to your traditions instead of glorying in the truths of Scripture? Give your heart to God. Have you found yourself far from the Lord and His precepts? Give your heart to God. Are you entangled in sin that seeks to trip your life up and feels like it's controlling you, like you, like you can't get out of it? Give your heart to God. It doesn't, that, you know what that means, that God cares for the hearts of sinful people like you and me? It means that it doesn't matter how you came in here. It means that there's no out sinning the cross of Christ. It means that his grace is sufficient for you as much as it's sufficient for the person sitting next to you. That no matter what you think disqualifies you from his love, that you hold within your heart as you walked in the doors this morning, that those things have been put to death through the cross of Jesus Christ and you are made clean in his sight. That no matter who you are or how you came in here this morning, it doesn't matter because the gracious love of God looks at all the (laughs) impurities. Easy for me to say. The grace of God looks at all the impurities, all the imperfections. And he sees past all of it to the deepest part of who you are and he loves that deepest part of who you are. Enough to die so that it might be purified in the eyes of the Father. So right now, today, whether you've been a Christian for two weeks or 50 years, would you ask Jesus to reveal in your heart those heart-level sins, to look past your actions that you've been using to deceive the true nature of your heart, even to yourself, and ask Him in His infinite grace and mercy to cleanse you at the deepest level of your being. Would you do that? Would you cast that request to Jesus today? Let's pray. Lord God, we are so grateful that even though our hearts are wicked and deceitful, Lord, even though we are characterized by sin, that you have made a way for us, that the message of your eternal love is one that is not swayed, is one that is not even lessened by the depth of my sin, God, but yet you see me, you look at me through the blood of Jesus Christ and you see righteousness and you see holiness and you see purity, something that I could not earn or could not deserve. And so, Lord, I pray that we would cast our hearts, that we would lay our hearts bare on the altar this morning Lord that you might examine us that you might show us those areas of of imperfection and impurity God and that you might create in us a new heart Uh, Lord Jesus we pray these things in your holy and precious name Amen